so then you have, you know, Jesus kind of against the Jews, if you will. And so God's done with them. But maybe that narrative gets kind of adapted and edited a little bit to where, you know, maybe Jesus is looked at, you know, or Yeshua in the Messianic movement is looked at as kind of a reform crusader. He's trying to reform mm-hmm. Judaism. And he looked at me, he told me, he said, you don't understand. You can't understand. They ripped the Torah from our hands. They ripped the Torah from our hands. There's no way you can validate these ideas they have about the identity of Mashiach. Hello, everybody. This is the Am Yisrael podcast, and uh, I have my colleagues go ahead and introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Sheldon, or Shalom. This is Ami. Hi, I'm Yisrael. And today we're going to be talking about a uh, quite a controversial subject. It's uh, tradition within the Messianic movement. And uh, so there's a number of topic, talking points we want to go ahead and talk about. But first of all, I think it's a good thing to talk about what does that mean? What's what, When we talk about tradition, or when we talk about quote unquote being orthodox, uh, and especially in the messianic movement, what does that mean? And so that's one of the topics we're going to be tackling today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the word orthodox, uh, the reform movement, the conservative movement, talking about some labels and how they touch and express themselves in the messianic world and the, the, the messianic spectrum. And of course, you know, each one of these labels in and of themselves are spectrums themselves. You know, you have uh, a wide variety in terms of uh, the reform movement, the conservative movement, and definitely in the Orthodox world, uh, more so than people would think. And they're not really monolithic. But uh, just to let everybody know, this is what we're going to do. We're just for ease of use, we're going to use these labels here in our discussion today. And uh, first of all, just a little bit of background. Uh, I wanted to go ahead and give people background that they might not know. Uh, basically, you know, during the Middle Ages, there were really not a lot of uh, splinter groups, if you will, off of Judaism. And, uh, you know, you had people here and there, you had the Karaites and things like that, but there, there were not a lot of, of splinter groups. Of course, you know, two, two Jews, three opinions. That's uh, obviously been, you know, since uh, time immemorial, probably um, all the way back since uh, the first disputes in the Tanaim, early, early uh, generations of uh, different, you know, rabbis that we see in the Mishnah. But uh we basically in the in the 1800s in the early 1800s you had uh, somebody who wanted to have a bar, a bat mitzvah and uh, so in about 1810 1811 in in a small town in Germany you had somebody who uh, basically had you know what we would maybe call a house minion and a lot of people liked it and it kind of developed and there was an effort to try and assimilate into uh, into the German populace, into the you know kind of German culture, if you will, mm-hmm. and uh, so that really led to what we call now the Reform Movement. And uh, so when we say Orthodox, uh, you know, basically that was a term that was given to a response to the Reform Movement by uh, different you know historic rabbis and you know kind of the mid mid eighteenth mid nineteenth century rather and on. And, uh, you know, so it's a little bit of a loaded term, you could say, but um, I want to hear from my colleagues and, uh, you know, one of my colleagues, Sheldon, you had a a really good way of uh, breaking up what we want to talk about today. So can you share that with us, please? Yeah. Titles do serve purposes. It's good to define something, 
But a title can not only define, but it can also divide and confuse people. And I thought that those might be some a good guide for our conversation. Yeah, I think so. Let's talk about the definition. You know, when we talk about traditional Messianic Judaism or Orthodox Messianic Judaism or uh, I don't know, whatever kind of call it, whatever kind of title or label you would want to give it to, uh, you know, what are some of the, the ideas that come to mind to you, gentlemen? Well, this is something that's really important because uh, from a Christian perspective, the wor- words like traditional and orthodox might mean the same thing. But from a Jewish perspective, traditional, um, traditionally, actually means <laughs> somebody who's interested in Judaism as a tradition or as a culture and not as a legal system. Whereas uh, orthodox is understood in the Jewish world as, and and rightly so, as somebody who understands Judaism as a legal, as I want to say a legal tradition. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so they, they understand Judaism as a, as, a, as a legal structure and an obligation. And so traditional and orthodox are completely opposite. Yeah, it's a little bit of a misnomer, to be honest, because, I mean, really, the, the kind of Judaism or the expression of Judaism that we're talking about is really orthoprax. You know, orthodox is like the right belief. Um, whereas orthoprax was, you know, talks about your practice mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, so either way, I think it was, I, I, am not exactly sure who coined the term, but it was definitely coined in the sense that like, okay, you have these, uh, variant movements, you know, the reform movement, and then later, later on the uh, conservative movement. And, you know, they had different belief structures in terms of what they believe about God or what do they believe about the Jewish people, who's in, who's out, you know, what they believe about, uh, end times things like, you know, the resurrection, the Messiah, is there an actual Messiah, Messianic era, all these kinds of things. And so I understand the the technica- technicality of it, but nowadays, you know, that's not really what we talk about. We talk more about the practice. And so I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. I don't know, Sheldon, if you want to weigh in. It's very interesting to me that the Messianic world, for the most part, is closest to like the reform movement or conservative movement. Um just talking broadly. Like, in expression? Yeah, like in MJA, you know, JC, you know, a lot of these. Like their their expression is a lot of these people I think probably came if they came from Judaism initially, they came from a reform expression of that. Hundred percent. Um and that carries with it, like their Hashkafa is I I think problematic. The the reform Hashkafa is problematic certainly for Somebody who's a New Testament, you know, believer in the New Testament, um, mm. you, if you believe in Yeshua and what he taught, it's going to necessitate certain beliefs about Moses and the Torah. Yeah, it's uh, kind of shots fired there, but uh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that defining the term, I mean, obviously, you know, when we say just something like Shomer Shabbat, mm-hmm. that's kind of, you know, one of the benchmarks in terms of uh, who's in and who's out. You know, is this person Shomer Shabbat? Can they be a witness to a life cycle event, you know, like a, a conversion, a marriage, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, so, oh, are they Shomer Shabbat? Well, you know, part of the difficulty is, is that, you know, somebody who would keep Shabbat more in a uh, reform or, or conservative way, they would look at themselves as Shomer Shabbat. Now, they might, you know, know, okay, well, when you say Shomer Shabbat, you know, we're thinking of like an expression in terms of what we call, quote unquote, an orthodox way. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
Yeah, when it touches the messianic movement, you know, then then we get into a, a whole wide variety of expressions. And I, I want to stick on the definition, though, and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, tease that out a little bit more. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've always said, and uh, I'll still lobby for this term, I really like the idea of classical Judaism mm-hmm. because, I mean, really, that's what we have. We have, you know, obviously there's different expressions, there's, you know, reform, conservative, uh, Yemenite, you know, all, uh, I'm sorry, there's um, Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi, Sephardic, Yemenite, Asiatic Jews, all kinds of different Jews, all kinds of different expressions. And to be sure, there's different halachic debates. But you really have, you know, kind of the stream of Judaism going through the whole Middle Ages and, uh, you know, post the Gemara era and, uh, you know, the era of the Talmud, the closing of the Talmud in the uh, 5th, 6th century. And you really don't have a lot of breakoffs from that. You have obviously a lot of development, a lot of debates, a lot of, uh, you know, different breaking up into different groups, you know, whether regionally or, or what have you. But uh, you don't have kind of a more liberalizing or a, um, an effort to assimilate into the culture. You don't really have that effect until the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what we're talking about, you know, in terms of classically, this is just the Judaism that existed from, you know, 200 years ago and on, you know, and back, I should say. And, uh, you know, so we really don't have these debates. This is a very, very, very recent debate in terms mm-hmm. of uh, Jewish history. So Israel, you asked the question, who who coined those terms, reform and orthodox? And in reality, the inter- interesting answer is Christianity did. Oh, interesting. That uh, orthodox is a Greek term, and it, and it uh, refers to something Christian. And reform refer- refers to the Reformation. And, oh, yeah. And so in the Jewish world, we have this, this strange situation in Germany where Jews um, have the idea of being Jewish in the home and German on the street— and their services come to imitate the Lutheran services of Germany. And and they yeah. call themselves even reform, or they end up being called reform by who knows. And um and so the, and, and the reason why Messianic congregations often imitate that um reform Jewish look is because the reform Jewish look imitates the church. And so you have Christian you have Jews in the church um wanting to come back to Judaism. And the, the, the thing that's the closest to them or what, where they're already at is Reform Judaism, which is imitating the church. Mm-hmm. In my own research of Israel Pick, which is one of the uh, founders of Messianic Judaism. Um, yeah, we need to do an episode on him for sure. Yeah, he started out as a Reform rabbi. And you read articles about him. This is like mid-1800s as he would stand in front of his, his Reform you know, congregation, he's wearing essentially like the Lutheran robes mm-hmm. oh, know, wow. of literally church uniform. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting to look at historically because you have a, um, a synagogue, I believe it, it was in a small town in, in Germany. So I'm not going to attempt the name of the small town, but um, you know, it's really informative because some of the initial changes that they made to the service, very, very slight compared to standards today. Uh, you know, so one of the things is they took out a few of the prayers that they saw as uh, very particular to Israel and and kind of uh, a little um, a little unkind, you know, to to non Jews, and uh, they introduced an organ into the services. But mm-hmm. interesting, interestingly enough, that was in the Kabbalat Shabbat service. It actually is before Shabbat, or typically that's you know it's prayed right 
you know, kind of in the, uh, you know, in between time or something like that, right after candle lighting or whatever. So it was not technically on Shabbat. So they were not technically violating Shabbat. And uh, they also wanted to go ahead and institute a, a clock tower mm. that was like all the other German churches. So obviously they weren't allowed to because of the pushback from the Christians in the area. But, you know, they just basically wanted the, the you know, also they introduced this idea of decorum, a little bit of the tra- change of dress um, to be able to, you know, look more like nobility, if you will. But I mean, you still had things like, you know, the women sat in a balcony up above and, uh, you know, they read from a Torah and it was, it was in, they read from a Torah scroll and it was in Hebrew and, you know, so really weren't a lot of changes, but obviously that kicked off the snowball of changes where today, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of reform congregations, you know, really only exist on Friday night and Torah service on Friday night, you know, even kind of up to, up for grabs in terms of what they believe in terms of the divine, you know, idea, do they even believe in God as you and I would uh, we'll talk about it. And a lot of that happens in the conservative movement, although the conservative movement's a lot more, a lot closer to what we would call like modern Orthodox today. But, um, but anyways, we could, you know, spend a lot of time talking about these expressions. Really what we want to get to today is how all of those expressions present themselves in the messianic sphere and the whole spectrum of mm-hmm. uh, messianic expression. Yeah, so Sheldon really kicked this uh, this whole idea off. And uh, so I think maybe what we'll do is talk about some of the tenets of the reform movement and the conservative movement and how really we see that kind of is untenable with people who want to read the writings of the apostles and the gospels, etc. Uh, so I don't know if uh, any of you gentlemen want to kick off, you know, talking about some of those finer points. Well, I've got a, I've got a good segue with that. So we were talking about definitions. Sure. And from a non-Jewish perspective, if somebody was to hear uh, the the descriptor of of conservative Judaism, they might also understand this to be referring to orthodoxy or halachic Judaism. Mm-hmm. But uh, the conservative movement actually was a response to the reform movement. The reform sure. movement ended up going maybe too far in the eyes of many, um, and even even within their own movement, to the point where the main service was happening in some places on Sundays, people were no longer giving their sons uh, brit milah and circumcision. They were having uh, their like planning meetings and serving shrimp. So, and this is mm-hmm. all, this is, these are all things that I heard even with, I'm not a, I'm not a historian of the reform movement, but I heard these things up. These are things that are recognized in the reform world. This is, this is normal history. So, um, but the conservative movement was a response to that and said, maybe we've gone too far. Let's be a little more conservative and <laughs> step back a little bit and, and take a look at halakha and at least look at uh, the framework of halakha for guidance in how to make decisions in the modern world. But from a halakhic or a traditionally, I don't know, an orthodox halakhic position, the conservative movement is actually one of two or three liberal movements. Yeah. So the conservative movement, just to pick up on what you were saying, Ami, is, you know, really built on a lot of tissue votes that, at least in the American expression, that came in the 1950s, you know, in terms Mm. of tissue votes about, uh, these are halakhic responses, by the way, you know, legal responses. Uh, to really modern issues in terms of like, for instance, can you drive on Shabbat? You know, can you drive to synagogue? And, uh, you know, one of the things that that response uh, 
triggered was the ability for people not to live in Jewish communities. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, when you don't live in a Jewish community, then you send your kids to public school or, you know, maybe, you know, non-Jewish private schools, and then there's intermarriage, et cetera. And so it kind of sent the ball rolling for, for a lot of those things. You know, you have to shuvot about uh, what's called um, stam yenim, you know, uh, about wine that is um, not uh, produced uh, specifically through people that are Orthodox Jews or, um, you know, just different different expressions of things like that, that, you know, really, obviously, the sages said, okay, we're going to put heavy barriers around these things because these are issues that touch into assimilation. And once you assimilate, then obviously you have people that are intermarried and then you have confusing identities with people, with the children that are born from those intermarriages, etc. And so that's kind of some of the things that we're talking about. And so let's put it, let's, let's throw it to some of the particular issues that are uh, looked at in the reform and, and uh, conservative movement. And really what we want to do is we want to talk about the expression we have here at Beth Emanuel and, and something that we really want to promote in the Messianic world and why we think that that actually works and it works a lot better and how we've seen that work here in Beth Emanuel. But uh, let's talk about some of the issues and, uh, you know, this is kind of the, the, the confusing, confusion part here where, you know, where we're talking about defining, but now this is, you know, kind of how things sometimes get confused. And for instance, uh, I mean, we could just talk about the authority of the Bible, you know, that's mm-hmm. probably a good place to start. I, and I don't want to misrepresent somebody who's coming from a reform perspective, sure. um, but to my, to my understanding, the, the concept is that that the Torah is a living document. It's it's something that Israel gets to define its rules throughout time. So so today we can decide we don't like that mitzvah. We're gonna redefine that mitzvah. In, yeah, it's kind of an updating our, updating mm-hmm. to assimilate into the culture mm-hmm. in terms of uh you know kind of the modern expression rather than the Torah like defining the culture. Yeah, the reform reform movement, I'll jump in here too real quick, um, really saw that, you know, this is kind of a tribal religion mm-hmm. and the expressions that worked, you know, in a, you know, kind of Bedouin desert, you know, community or, you know, an expression like thousands of years ago really needs to be updated mm-hmm. um, into, you know, modern society. So things that, you know, looked at like a procedure you mentioned on me about uh, circumcision, bring me law, that's seen as something that was barbaric. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's, you know, kind of something that's updated, of course, gender roles, which actually didn't take place until about the 1980s. So pretty recently, or maybe it was the 70s, I think. Um, I might be off on that. But, you know, gender roles in terms of, you know, who can serve in the pulpit, who can serve as clergy, and, you know, these kinds of things. Let's go ahead and talk about the the issue of the resurrection, because I think this is probably, you know, mm-hmm. the resurrection, the Messiah, the Messianic era. I mean, these are things, obviously, that are distinctive of the Messianic movement. Uh, besides, you know, our, our uh, kind of spiritual heritage and connection to the Christian world, those those are obviously things that divide us, if you will, uh, between any expression of Judaism. So I don't know which one of those, you know, between the Messiah, the the Messianic era, and the and the uh, resurrection. Take I one can of those. tell you from for myself. I, I mentioned before that uh, I'd spent some time in a Reform synagogue and. Where I first fell in love with the liturgy was in a reform shul, and I it was so beautiful to me. And I actually assumed that the most beautiful aspects of the davening must have been modern. This had to have been modern poetry, 
And there was no way that those those really beautiful aspects like in uh, a Marif service could be ancient. But then when I first cracked open a an Orthodox Siddur, I realized that not only were those beautiful poetic prayers in that Orthodox Siddur, but more than that, that Orthodox Siddur was talking about the resurrection of the dead and the coming of Mashiach, which were two subjects my Reform Siddur was missing. Yeah, the, those are things that were definitely edited out. And you have, um, you know, if you look at the, the Siddur of Sim Shalom, which is the vanguard conservative Siddur, uh, you know, you have certain expressions in the Amidah, you know, the, the 19 benedictions that we say three times a day that were edited so slight that if you didn't really know Hebrew, if you weren't paying attention, you almost mm. might miss it. But it was just the wording in terms of, uh, you know, the Messianic era and the Messiah themselves, the Messiah himself, mm-hmm. or well, both those issues themselves. Mm-hmm. There was a woman that I knew back in California, and she would study with a Jewish man at the local reform synagogue temple. And she once asked this man, do you, do you believe in the Messiah? Hmm. And he said, no, we do not believe that God will become a man. Oh, That's not the question that she was asking, but the very foundational concept of the Messiah mm. was like totally lost on on this guy. Mm. That I think is extremely problematic that we in the messianic world would gravitate toward a reform hashkafa, like a worldview, if they don't even have any sort of a concept of the Messiah, the the kingdom of Messiah, the, the the redemption, the messianic era, like, are we in exile or are we not? <laughs> yeah. So there's, so, you know, an interesting story about a cousin of mine. Uh, I'll tell the story and then maybe we can move on to how this all expresses itself in the messianic world. But, uh, you know, he had become a Yeshua follower. The only other Yeshua follower in my family, he was, you know, raised to assimilated, assimilated Jew. You know, uh, one of my friends likes to call it, uh, Christmas, in, uh, let's see, Locks and Bagels, Christmas and Easter. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an mm-hmm. assimilated Jew in America. He went to all of the different synagogues in his in his town, and he asked each one of them, you know, asked the rabbis, each, what was their understanding of who the Messiah was and the Messianic era, etc. Because he was searching, and, you know, he grew up Jewish with a strong Jewish identity, but didn't really have any of these issues defined. And so he wanted to see what, you know, what do they all believe? And so we got a kind of variety of opinions and obviously, you know, the Orthodox movement, uh, the Orthodox rabbi believed in a personal Messiah, you know, an actual person uh, was going to be the king of Israel and believed in an actual messianic era. Uh, whereas the reform and conservative expressions were more kind of a, a messianic, you know, era, messianic utopia, but there wasn't an actual particular messiah itself mm. like you and i would think about it. it was more just a an era that was going to happen mm. um you know also you know something interesting too about about all of this is that like you said you mentioned sheldon that you know the question is why would we want to hitch our wagon you know to use a phrase why would we want to hitch our wagon to these expressions of judaism when they don't really represent what we read in the apostles mm-hmm. uh, and what, what our master, what Yeshua, you know, our rabbi uh, expressed. And so they don't express, you know, kind of a classical opinion on on who the Messiah is and what he's going to do and what the Messianic era is going to be like, etc. 
And, you know, so the question is, why would we want to go ahead and have these expressions? So I'll open that question. You know, why, why do you think that, you know, we already talked a little bit about maybe this is the background of a lot of the leaders in the Messianic movement. Mm-hmm. But uh, why do you think that uh, that's kind of the expression that we see in a lot of Messianic synagogues? Can I play devil's advocate for a moment? Uh, of course. So I think that one is accessibility. That um, mm-hmm. in the reform movement, especially the reform movement today, we even have a situation where you can go into a reform shul and hear Christian songs being sung. <laughs> um, that, that song was Sanctuary, mm-hmm. Lord Prepare Me to Be a Sanctuary, Pure and Holy. That song has worked its way from churches into... Reform day camps or something? Yeah, reform day camps or something like this, and then now formally into reform synagogues. Oh, interesting. And um, when when a Messianic Jew, especially one um, who grew up in with a Christian background, this is somebody who's Jewish halakhically and grew up in church and now is searching out their Jewish identity, when they step into a reform shul and they have that experience of, oh, oh my goodness, they're singing a song that I know. And I feel like that makes me, I'm at home here. On another note, somebody can look in scripture and they can see Yeshua challenging some of the leadership of his day. And they think, well, we must be challenging something. Maybe it's gender roles. Maybe it's the restrictions of, uh, of Shabbat. Or maybe it's uh, the restrictions of kashrut. And so they say, I feel at home in this reform environment. Um, and when they look for uh, a, a synagogue, a messianic synagogue, where, where they can find a forever home, they look for one that looks reform. Interesting. Yeah, I, I want to hear from Sheldon in just a moment, but just to jump in as well. It's, it's an interesting thing because I've often noticed the narrative of what happens with Jews who enter in the church. So, you know, a Jewish person comes into the church, however they get there. And all of a sudden the narrative is that the, the Pharisees are the bad guys, obviously, you know, you know, you show Jesus is the good guy and he's like crusading against the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees kind of that, that, um, that people group gets superimposed over the Jews. So then you have Jesus kind of crusading against the Jewish establishment. So then you have, you know, Jesus kind of against the Jews, if you will. And uh, so the Jews were, you know, a thing of the past and, you know, God's not happy with them anymore because they didn't believe, you know, they didn't accept Jesus. And so God's done with them, you know, obviously replacement theology, whether that is said explicitly or kind of implicitly in sermons and things like that. And so maybe it's, you know, to jump off what you said, never thought about this before, but maybe that narrative gets kind of uh, adapted and edited a little bit to where, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Jesus is looked at, you know, or Yeshua in the Messianic movement is looked at as kind of, a, a reform crusader. He's trying to reform mm-hmm. Judaism. Mm-hmm. And uh, so therefore, you know, he's taking off all these man-made laws, you know, that express themselves in, you know, halachic uh, development and things like that. And, you know, he's wanting to go ahead and uh, assimilate, you know, non-Jews into the culture and, you know, kind of update Judaism mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of a pure expression, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's kind of the narrative that gets adapted in Messianic congregations. I think so. Why is there almost kind of a fear and a, um, um, a, a, an extreme pushback to, you know, to orthodoxy and the messianic movement? You know, it's almost kind of like, well, we're not orthodox, you know? So that's kind of like, almost it's like, oh, well, it's a baseline. Of course, we're not orthodox. That's not how we express ourselves. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about why there's almost kind of a fear or pushback to that. Fear of the unknown. 
Mm. <laughs> it's like you were, you were talking about accessibility, like a more orthodox expression is is like jumping in on the on the deep end of the pool. There's a lot of depth there and it is it can be daunting I think to people. For me, I I came out of the church I didn't want something that felt like church. Oh, I wanted something that felt ancient, authentic, had a had a a tradition to it, um, some place where I could really learn and grow. I was looking for growth. I wasn't looking for a mega church, another mega church that just uh, instead of a cross, there's a star of David, hmm. you know, up at the front, um, where you could also just get lost in. I wanted a place where I could grow and learn. Um, and so that's what really drew me toward a Orthodox, literally like going to Chabad and then, you know, coming here to Beth Emanuel. That's what drew me. And so to me, the, I, the accessibility is actually something I wasn't looking for, but I know that a lot of people are. And I, but I think that a lot of people are afraid of the unknown. Yeah. I, I you know, to, I'll tell a quick story. I want to touch on a little bit more of what you said, because you said a lot of Really important things are there. You know, I had very much the same story. I came out of just an evangelical Christianity, which I was in for a couple of years after, you know, growing up as an assimilated Jew. And, you know, I also wanted to look for something, you know, I had gotten this idea of being faithful to, to scripture and being faithful to God. And so I wanted to look for an expression of, of you know, something that was really faithful. And, uh, you know, so I was searching and Chabad was accessible to me as it is to a lot of people, a lot of Jews on, uh, you know, college campuses, they go out of their way to do that. And so I attended a Chabad house and I just saw, you know, it was very interesting because I saw them talking about, oh, we need to walk in Mashiach likeness. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's just like what Paul says to walk in Christ likeness, you know? So I saw like a, a, an extreme affinity between a lot of the phrases, even just down to the phraseology of what the apostles say and a more messianic quote unquote expression of Orthodox Judaism in, you know, the Hasidic world in the Chabad. And later I came to appreciate the, the extreme uh, dedication to, to the Bible and mm -hmm. trying to walk it out just, you know, faith as faithfully as possible and trying to build uh, rules and, and regulations and things like that, that are going to help a community to walk it out and to stay faithful to the Bible uh, I, you know, I came to really value that in different expressions of orthodoxy as well. And, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, kind of the yeshivish quote unquote world or, um, you know, some other modern orthodox world or, you know, the Sephardic, I went to Sephardic synagogue for a couple of years as well, um, which is obviously very, very different culturally. And they're dealing with different cultural issues, you know, different com coming from different regions and things like that. Most messianic communities, they have community seders. You know, community Passover seders. I'm sure we all been to one, and uh, they typically just because out of logistics, you know, Passover because of the, the time change in most countries ends up being really late. You know, like you know, starts at like eight, eight thirty, you know, something like that. And um, you know, that's that's a late night for something that's built around you know an event that's built around the family. And so and I drinking remember wine, <laughs> yeah, drinking wine, etc. And you know, most people drive there, of course, and. Um, you know, they don't keep two days of Passover. So, or, you know, maybe they do, but, um, you know, maybe there's, they send their kids to school the next day. So it's a school night maybe, or something like that. And so this particular Messianic congregation that I was in, um, uh, the, the way that it happened to fall out that year, it was, um, it was Moti Shabbat is when Passover started. So 
the Passover should start it on Saturday night, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to have a community Seder, so they did it at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, mm-hmm. which was technically still on Shabbat and technically wasn't Passover yet. And so I objected and I said, you know, well, this isn't even Passover yet. We, you know, what are we doing? And one of the responses that was given to me was like, well, you know, you don't have kids yet. You're not married. You don't know how this works. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how could you do something, you know, starts to, how can you start dinner at like 8.30 or 9 o'clock or maybe even 10 o'clock at night, you know, with kids? Yeah, you don't, you don't really know kind of what it's like to have kids. And I thought to myself, that was the silliest response I've ever heard. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, people have been doing this for thousands of years, having, you know, large families. And they figured it out some way, you know, I mean, this is, this is not something like a new phenomenon, a new problem that families have had to face, you know, and I was, I was kind of really, you know, taken aback by that. And I kind of was kind of judging that person, but then it came to me and I, re- and I realized something they've never seen it done before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they, they never experienced, you know, a family who said, okay, well, we're going to put their, you know, put our kids down for a long nap or, you know, just have kids, you know, falling asleep at the Passover Seder table or, you know, they just never had those experiences. So I think what you said is very insightful, Sheldon, in terms of fear of the unknown. You know, they just never seen how this could work in a community setting. Mm-hmm. You you had mentioned about having Mashiach likeness or however you worded it. My rabbi at the at Chabad back in California, uh, he once said that he and... All the other rabbis, I don't know if it's in the region, but they would they would call each other and they would have these discussions and they would work through their problems on the phone. And he he his wording was the whole goal was to bring out Mashiach in in each of us. Wow, <laughs> that sounds really familiar. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, the you you touched on and uh, and very eloquently talked about about people not seeing how things were done. The beauty of a classical, <laughs> was that your word? Classical your, Judaism. Your classical yeah. Judaism is it's not about so much what happens within the four walls of of the sanctuary. The prayer services we have are fantastic. Listening, you know, to the great singing of, of a cantor is beautiful. But Judaism really happens in the home. Yeah, Judaism absolutely. happens around the Shabbos table. Sure. There's and there's lots of other ways that it's it's expressed, but it it's requires community. Yeah. And that's something that I think that you miss out on if if you're not really observing things the way that they have been done for thousands of years. You yeah. miss out on so much. The beauty of lighting like we can we can argue like people people will miss out on beauty because they'll argue about why we shouldn't be doing that yeah people people will will have arguments you know should we be lighting candles there's there's no mitzvah you know in the torah to light candles before you know shabbat but there's such a beauty in it that you're missing out on if 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 for some reason you're doing that or not lighting fires on shabbat and like I've been to Messianic congregations where, well, we're starting our service now. Our service starts now regardless of when sunset was, and we're lighting candles. <laughs> well, right. well, what about the literal letter of the law? <laughs> well, and also they would understand themselves as uh, keeping some kind of biblical Torah, which is a real difficulty when you're lighting yeah. candles after dark. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that this, you know, 
Um, you touched on something earlier in terms of accessibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a lot of times what happens. You know, let's face it, most Messianic congregations kind of built around a necessity. You know, there was some kind of like home Bible study or, you know, some group of people who decided, hey, you know, the expressions in church don't really work for us culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of raising our kids or or for ourselves, and uh, you know, so you have the Jew- the Jesus movement where you know uh, back in the in the sixties, where a bunch of people came to Yeshua who were Jewish, and they said, "Well, we want to recapture this." So, okay, let's make our own meetings. Mm-hmm. But part of the difficulty is they didn't have the accessibility of the, obviously the Orthodox world, mm-hmm. and a lot of times I think it also happens to do with logistics. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of what you're talking about here and, you know, lighting candles and starting a service after uh, technically Shabbat has come in. And so a lot of times I think it's just logistics. And and I think a huge part is education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's just face it. I mean, I think all of us here would be rabbis in any normal Orthodox setting. You know, if we had accessibility to go to yeshivot and things like that, we would all be rabbis. And the fact that we're not is just be, just basically because we don't have access to yeshivas. We don't have access to getting ordination, smicha. And, you know, the, so the Orthodox world has shut us out because of our belief in Yeshua and our commitment. And so if I wanted to become a leader in the Messianic world, so really the only thing that's available to me, and I understand there are more Messianic people that are kind of reaching the wall of going to uh, reforming conservative uh seminaries, but I mean, really the only thing that's available to me and that has been available for, I think a lot of our leaders is just basically going to, you know, kind of a secular Jewish, um, uh, secular Jewish uh, studies department in a university, you know, maybe in a secular university or going into, you know, kind of marrying that secular, secular Jewish studies with uh, a Christian or a Christian ordination or Christian, you know, a Bible school or something like that. So I think that that also leads into a lot of what's happening here. It's not. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's God forbid that people don't want to. You know, people want to be faithful to the Bible, but they just don't have a, a accessibility to education. I so. think I think that's absolutely true. And to go along with that, there's this other issue of, I think most people take it as an assumption that it is forbidden according to halacha to believe that Yeshua is the Mashiach. And I would really like, uh, you know, to challenge that and to say that as long as somebody as it depends on what we're talking about, what, what source we're looking at for halacha, are we holding by Rambam? We're looking at Shulchan Aruch. What, what are we doing? But if we, if we like say, look at Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch never even mentions, uh, the issue, uh, positive or negative the, about the identity of Mashiach and, um, somebody believing that his or her, her Rebbe is Mashiach does not make them invalid as a Jew and does not make their halachic observance invalid. Um, And so if we're coming from that perspective where we believe we have to change at least one thing about halacha, if we think that Yeshua is halachically forbidden and that this isn't just a hashkafic issue, a hashkafa being being a worldview if we don't if we believe that this is a legal issue and not an issue of worldview we think from jump that we have to be changing jewish law and we never get to the point where we could say i want to learn jewish law i want to learn halacha i want to learn how to do things according to jewish law and so for every mitzvah we change it we say okay i want to keep shabbat but what am i going to change here i want to uh 
I want to, you know, learn Torah, but what, what, what ideas am I going to change when I come to the Torah? I want to put on tzitzit, but how am I going to change them to fit my, my situation? Because we look at the issue of Mashiach and we say, okay, I want to believe in a Jewish Mashiach, but I have to change by one. I think that's trickled down in terms of just an overall attitude. Uh, towards the scriptures. And I think, you know, to be fair, there's another camp in Messianic Judaism that really says, well, wait a second. These men didn't believe in Yeshua. And according to Romans 8, it says, you know, if anybody doesn't believe in Yeshua, the spirit's not in him. And so, okay, these people, you know, are not spirit filled. And so why would I want to listen to them? Um, You know, my pushback on that, and, and I understand that, that sentiment but my pushback on that is that, okay, well, then you're not really doing any kind of Judaism. You can't call yourself a Judaism. You can call yourself something else, but, you know, maybe a different expression of Christianity. But, you know, everything that we do in Judaism is based off of tradition. It's based off of, you know, thousands of years of interpreting, uh, you know, passages and walking them out in a particular way. And so, I mean, you know, you don't have kippahs, you don't have synagogues, you don't have Torah scrolls, you don't have, I mean, all these kinds of things come from Jewish tradition. I mean, even being able to read the text itself, you know, the canon, quote unquote, of the the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, I mean, you're not able to read the text itself. There's no vowels, there's no punctuation. You're not able to do that. All of that comes from classical Judaism. So reading that, you know, we inherit that even within Christianity, What you know, whether they realize it or not, they inherit that from Judaism. I was listening to a radio program yesterday, and there's a, a messianic Jewish theologian uh, who leads this this radio program. Uh, though I think he would also not quibble with being called a Christian at all. And he he posed the question regarding being a classical, to use your term, a classical Judaism. It's going to catch on. It's going to catch on. <laughs> and he said, "So you're telling me." that Judaism, like the rabbis, carried down the the Torah in the way that it's supposed to be kept, and they carried down all these the these correct traditions and everything, but they don't believe in the Messiah. They're completely uh, anti-Yeshua. Anti-Yeshua, and yet the Holy Spirit like a, allowed them to carry down these traditions. And my answer would be, yes, okay. <laughs> Where's the problem? Because when I read Paul, and Paul talks about a blindness put on on Israel, he's he says a partial blindness with regard to the Messiah. And he also says that the oracles of God belong to the Jewish people. Yeah, the, the Jewish people have the right to interpret the scriptures for mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. It's not in it's not in heaven. And, you know, I play devil's advocate with this person and just say, look, you know, you've written books and you you know a lot of your ministry is dedicated to kind of restoring the historical identity of Yeshua. Well, what about the church? I mean, the church is basically kind of hijacked the scriptures and I know that's a can sound like a stark term, but I mean, let's look at, you know, the history of Christian anti-Semitism. That's essentially what happened. Fundamentally redefined who Yeshua is, who mm. the Messiah is. And, and what he taught. And what he taught, exactly. And, you know, and oftentimes grossly misrepresented, you know, what he taught so much so that, you know, Jesus is now an en- enemy of the Jews. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what about that? You know, what are, are we to believe that, okay, the Holy Spirit worked in the church all these, you know, all these thousands of years and that they, you know, can, can we trust the quote unquote Christian Bible? 
that we, we can ask those kinds of questions too. Mm-hmm. There was a very prominent um, rabbi uh, in the Northwest, uh, and I had a really nice conversation with him on my front porch one morning. And he looked at me, he told me, Tim, you can't say these things out loud. And again, he said, he said, you can't, you don't even think them in your head. He said, you don't understand. You can't understand. They ripped the Torah from our hands. They ripped the Torah from our hands. There's no way you can validate these uh, ideas they have about the identity of Mashiach. And I thought, wow, it's, it's a very profound point. It, pro- profound point. It's not a legal uh, perspective, but it is a very profound emotional one. And I didn't really have an answer for that, a response for that, um, not on an emotional level, until I read something from Daniel Tzion. Um, Rabbi Daniel Tzion, he said, we need to rip Yeshua from their hands. We need to rip Yeshua from their hands, talking about the non-Jewish world. Wow, that is a, a, a response. And I think that it's not only Jews who need to be involved in that, but also Christians. For any Christian that is is putting um, is is locking Yeshua in this box where he's no longer Jewish, where he hates Jews, where he thinks all the Jewish people are going to hell, where he's against the Torah. Any Christian or any Jew, for that matter, who's locking Yeshua in that box, we need to rip Yeshua from their hands. And Christians need to be involved in that. Uh, Messianic Jews need to be involved in that. Jews who are not Messianic need to be involved in that, as uh, there there have been uh, very great Jewish minds who have recognize that Yeshua is a Jew, his teachings are Jewish, and we need to reclaim that personality for ourselves. And the only way we can do that is by seeing him in the halachic framework in which he existed. Yeah, you know, and I, I want to take that and pivot a little bit towards why we're here, you know, and I'm talking about physically here. Uh, you know, I really see this as the mission of Beth Emanuel. You know, Beth Emanuel for years, for, you know, a decade and a half, uh, and over that, has really sought to go ahead and restore Yeshua's identity, his historical identity, and then also, you know, through the teachings of Daniel Lancaster and Aaron Eby and you know other prominent members of the community over the you know over the decade and a half uh, plus, they really wanted to go ahead and say, okay, well, what did Yeshua mean when he said X, Y, and Z? Well, instead of looking at our faith tradition, you know, whether we're a Lutheran or a Pentecostal or a Baptist or whatever. Let's look at historical, historically, you know, his context and some of the streams of thought that came out of that, whether they represent themselves in mystical Judaism or they represent themselves in the, in the Talmud or the halachic literature or what have you. And let's put Yeshua back into his context. And I really think that not only are they doing that here in terms of ideologically, but they're also doing that. We talked about community. Part of the reason I think all three of us are well, not, not part of the reason, a big part of the reason, maybe one of the sole reasons that all three of us are actually physically here is because you see, this is a place that we can raise our families. You know, I look at other Messianic communities and I, you know, although we stand on their shoulders and we stand on the shoulders of some of the people, frankly, that, uh, you know, we're, we're taking issue with and there's much respect there. And yeah. we have to always realize that obviously you know, they got us to this point where then we can go ahead and carry on the torch. But I think that there's been a failure in the Messianic movement, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We talked about this, I think, last podcast where, you know, if you talk to the average Messianic congregant, you say, you know, you ask the question, um, okay, so 
how many generations are represented representative families in this community? Are there grandchildren that are in this community, great grandchildren in this community? And to the extent that the answer is no, that's really a failure of a community because I mean, you can always have kind of this revolving door of Christian looky loos, mm-hmm. you know, Christian people who come in, they, they feel, you know, an affinity with, uh, you know, they want to look into quote unquote Hebrew roots and, you know, their Hebrew roots. And so then they come to a Messianic synagogue and then, you know, they like some of the accoutrements and some of the authenticity that they find of uh, looking at Yeshua through historical lens. But then the part of the difficulty with that is if you just have a revolving door of people coming in and going out, it doesn't really build the community. Whereas holding on to classical Jewish values, quote unquote, Orthodox values, mm-hmm has really built a community here where you have multi-generational families that are represented here. So I, I, I think what I want to do is I want to talk about you know, and shift the conversation to what are some of the reasons why you and uh, you put you in particular, and if you're married you're, and have kids, your family, you know, why you feel that um, this holding on to classical Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, whatever, and the expression that, that's here in Beth Emanuel, why it's important and valuable to you as an individual or to you and your family. Beginning with myself personally, halacha is a safety net that keeps us grounded to what we're doing. If, if I don't accept the value of halacha and I say, um, I believe that there is an issue with your homosexual lifestyle. Okay, let's say a homosexual comes to uh, comes to the congregation and, and they want to have some kind of validation of the way they live. I can tell them without a doubt that I believe in you as a human being. I want you to learn. I want you to grow. And that the reason I think that this activity is forbidden is because of halakha. Because there's a halakhic ruling and it's forbidden according to halakha. I don't question the fact that you have these urges. I don't question the fact that you feel this way. Or somebody comes and they want to eat at a trafe tra- restaurant. I, as a Jew, you're saying? As a Jew. I, I can say, look, it's nothing against McDonald's. I wish every McDonald's was kosher. <laughs> I want to eat at McDonald's myself when I smell that, when I smell that food. That's great. It smells amazing. But uh, it's because of halakha that I don't. And it's because of halakha that we have a mechitza. And it's because of halakha that we have the different kinds of divisions that we have in the Jewish world. Uh, we separate uh, meat and milk. And, and from my children, this is a related subject. Because why am I telling my kids something is right or wrong? Is it because I think something's icky? No. It's not because I personally believe something is icky. I want everyone to have a smooth... Uh, transition from childhood into adulthood and I want everyone to find a partner and I want everyone to feel loved and I want everyone to be included but for myself with with raising uh, children in this confusing world I need a definitive answer about why something is permitted or forbidden and the answer is halakha these are the rulings that we have this is the the structure that we live in these are the difficulties that that we have to navigate. And I'm not just making these things up on the fly based on my own um, personal tastes. How come the non-Jewish person can't get an aliyah to the Torah? Well, that's an issue of halakha. That isn't my, that's not my personal taste. I want everyone to get as close to the Torah as they want to be. And, um, and so 
having a halakhic framework is the only way, and rather than just making up the rules as we go based on what we think is icky or or uh, appealing. You know, definitely a podcast to be had in terms of what's the relationship of halacha to Yeshua and his rulings and the apostles' rulings. So I definitely think that, you know, a lot of people might hear that on me and they might take issue with that. But I th- what I hear you saying is that, and this is kind of maybe how I'd summarize your comments, you know, the commitment to a halachic framework and the commitment to the framework of classical Jewish law, as we see it, you know, to, you know, 250 years and before, if you will, um, really is a, a vehicle with or a receptacle with which we can go ahead and hand down a belief system to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's really what it's about. You know, we want our kids to continue in the way that, you know, we continue in the way that uh, we present it to them, uh, albeit they're going to have their own expression, et cetera, of that. But, you know, the the vehicle to transmit that really is through tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't really tr- transmit your belief system uh, to the next generation without tradition. And not mm-hmm. just tradition, but law. Yeah. I mean, there has to be, there, there has to be parameters. Mm-hmm. And I mean, also, so. Also beauty. We need to show our families, our, our children, the beauty of Judaism so that they can't even imagine not lighting candles for Shabbat, not lighting the menorah, the Hanukkah on during Hanukkah. There was how about how about maybe even having Shabbat dinners? I mean, that's not yeah. that's not a thing in most families that are messianic. But yeah. on, but on the other hand, how do you keep them from lighting the candles after dark because it's even prettier? <laughs> well, here's 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 a story that came to my mind. There was a a family here at Beth Emanuel, and I'll I'll leave the names out to protect the innocent. One of the children, the the young boys, he wouldn't put on his his tallis in the morning, his his tzitzit. And his father said, "What are you doing? Why aren't you putting on your tzitzit?" And he's, "I don't want to. I don't want to." And so he said, "Well, hey, get, get your get your shoes on. We're gonna go to the fast food restaurant like across the street." Boy's like, "What? We don't do that. We're Jewish." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so that then then the point gets like driven home. Ah, I put on tzitzis because I'm Jewish. Yeah, you know, I, and, it, and it was the halakha brought him back to what's literally written that we should be wearing tzitzit. Yeah, and to be fair, it wasn't it wasn't you know that uh, you know his father cracked open the shulchan aruch and you know pointed to the siman the seif that you know said that you know showed showed him or you know pulled out the Bible verse or was I mean it was the shared tradition the shared family tradition that you know that we plugged into from our ancestors and their ancestors etc. That he was appealing to, and uh, you know, there's a story in the Messianic congregation that I attended, and uh, there was a lot of children that were at bar bar and bat mitzvah range, and uh, so somebody decided that okay, we're just gonna have a b'nai mitzvah class, and so this this individual she asked the question to them. She's like, okay, so what's Shabbat all about? And so they, you know, talked about some of the things that uh, we do on Shabbat. And they said, okay, so what, you know, so what do we do? Well, we come to synagogue, we light candles, we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, okay, so great. So what don't we do on Shabbat? And they said, work. And she's like, okay, good, good. And what else? And there was silence because there wasn't really a conception of like, well, what do we cease from doing on Shabbat? Because these are families that went to the movies and, you know, watched movies mm-hmm. at home and, you know, ate in restaurants and, you know, basically just carried on their normal weekday life on Shabbat. And so there wasn't really any conception 
of what Shabbat is about in terms of uh, parameters. You know, there's obviously things that you that you do, but there's not really anything you abstain from. Um, and it's not based on anything that's faithful to the Bible or belief in God or those kinds of things like that, like you were talking about in terms of commitment to halacha. And I think that that's part of the difficulty. So because, I mean, let's face it, you know, when you hit your teenage years and you hit your young 20s, you know, you have the whole the whole world in front of you and you're all of a sudden now able to make your own decisions and your own choices, whether you go into the workforce or whether you're, you're in a university setting or something like that. And the question is, what's going to, why be Jewish? You know, why be Messianic? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a Messianic Gentile or Messianic Jew, you know, you get what I'm saying? I mean, why? Why do any of this stuff? What What's the point? If all it is is that it's stuff that we do because of its a cultural expression or a family expression, but there's really no anchors in terms of rightness or wrongness, mm-hmm. then why do any of it? So I think that's maybe a good place for us to close this conversation here, unless anybody has anything else that they want to add. No, I think that was an important conversation. Yeah, I think so too. Well, you know, until next time, we'll probably have more podcasts and more discussions about this. And there's a lot of a whole host of topics that we didn't hit on, but thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, if this sparks some conversation for you, uh, you know, please go ahead and, and you can send emails to us and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll have different ways for you to contact us, you know, coming up as we develop this podcast. But thank you for spending time with us. And until next time, have a great day in every way. Shalom. Shalom.